I don't suppose you have a copy of Calamity Hour by P.R. Mount? No, I'm sorry. It is rather sweary. No, I told you, we don't. It's called Calamity Hour. Nope. No, look, Dad. <sighs> Not a one. Never mind. There's still a few more to try. Good old Peggy Mountpod. We don't just help with the ordinary things in life, like nostalgia and retroactive television reviews. We're there for the nice things, too, like excessive alcohol and profanity and going on stupid. You do? Oh, that's wonderful. Can you download it for me, please? M my name? Uh, oh, yes. It's P.R. Mount. This week on the Peggy Mount Podcast. The Red Hand Gang are raking through bins. They are. And I have to be honest, it looks like colourised footage of urchins in the Great Depression. <laughs> it is, and that whole situation with the baseball card stuck to the. Oh, the, I don't. The, the I've got that. How is yeah. that, how is taping a baseball card to a lamppost a clue? The clue, not just the clue, the entire inciting incident to the end of the whole thing. There, there's a bit, there's a bit of rubbish taped onto a lamppost in an entire city full of shit that we go raking <laughs> through every day. <laughs> they mentioned something. They mentioned one of their one of their acts in the in the first segment, Ritz. And I thought, okay, this Ritz must be a big uh, big deal. Uh huh. Uh huh. Ooh. I have never seen anything like this in my entire life. <laughs> what is some... Um, what's Peggy got in her head there? Right. Is that a wig or is it a hat? I genuinely want it's to know. There's a, there's it's a, a hat. It, there's, a, there's a clip on the back of it which looks like it's meant to be in her hair. But well, then it's like yeah, such the, a bad... The, the but it's, a, it's a bad hat and a bad wig. I can't honestly... Can't. Nobody's hair. Nobody's hair looks like that. Nobody's hat <laughs> looks like that. <laughs> Are you all right? Hello and welcome back to the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour. I'm Dr Velvet. I'm Blackout. And we're here, yet again, we have returneth to talk about the telly. Yes, hello you, and thanks for joining us once again for our casual cultural critique of vintage television, where Britain's best-loved battle axe is never far from our minds, because here, all roads lead to the Neon Mountain. If you go over to PeggyMountPod.com, info and links for the episodes we're discussing is in the show notes there. You can find us on the socials, get in touch to say hello, or suggest programmes you'd like us to cover. Before we analyse all the clues and then burst into an ongoing crime scene with a policeman and tow, Dr Velvet, I've got to ask, what are you drinking? I thought... I'm on, I mean, I'm on the wine. I'm right. on the wine. Uh -huh. But I think, uh, you know, bottles are very passé. Uh-huh. Uh, I've, I've gone for a box. <laughs> nice. So, uh, Va Val Central, Merlot, Val Central. A box of Merlot, fantastic a work. Bo a, a box of Merlot because I thought it fits with a the theme. I've yet to decide what that theme is, uh -huh. but it fits with it anyway. What about your good self? Uh, I also am off the bottles this week and I'm enjoying... A can of Gosa to Hollywood. 
A can of what? Gosser to Hollywood. It's a Danish Ooh. sour beer brewed with oranges. Ooh. And it's, um, yeah, it's fucking horrible. But I'm going to finish it. Those are the rules. They are indeed. They are indeed. Oranges are nice. Do you know what's better than an orange? Go on. An apple. Would you like an apple? Maybe later. You don't want one now? I don't see one here, and I see we're both recording by the mics to see no way of getting one here, so let, let's worry about that one later, shall we? We'll do that. We'll do that. And, and well, we might, because here we are. And, yes, I'm loving uh, the newly decorated studio to uh-huh. feature in with, with everything that we're talking about. Wonderful battleship-grey walls. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the striped curtains. I mean, red, black, white and grey, all in one curtain. Do you know what yep. I mean? Uh, um, that's all good. Uh, a signed, signed picture, no less, of Jed from the Howard Jones. And next to a massive poster of a Lamborghini. Fantastic work. I'm all set. <laughs> if this is feng shui, I'm shwayed. I am loving it. I am actually loving it. Producer Ken, are you responsible for this decor? He's not. We haven't switched his mic on. Ken, caught red-handed. La, 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 la. Yes, The Red Hand Gang. This is a children's drama series starring Matthew Laborto, J.R. Miller, Jolie Newman, Johnny Brogner, James Bond III, and another Johnny who was a dog. Or was a dog, I suppose. Basically, if your name begins with J, you're in the cast list. Set in urban Los Angeles, this handful of kids spend their time having adventures, solving crimes, and generally sticking their noses into other people's business. The show was created by NBC for the American TV market in 1977, but it first aired for audiences in the UK, courtesy of BBC One, on Friday the 9th of May, 1980. And so we go in with that first episode, The Face at the Window, which sounds more H.P. Lovecraft than CBBC, written by Ray Allen and Harvey Bullock. While doing their bit to popularise recycling, our heroes stumble across a kidnapping in progress. This gave you that Friday feeling. Uh-huh. Oh, the Red Hand Gang. The Red Hand Gang. Well, I'm sorry, I loved it. I loved this show. Then or now or then and now? Both. Okay. Absolutely both, because it is easy to absolutely lay into this. Uh, (laughs) Yes, yes it is. It it, it really is. However, however, um, well, I'll get into plus points sort of later on. Um, let's, Let's just look at it. Then and now, when I look back at it now, because I hadn't really seen it, Mm -hmm. recently, um, until we we needed to to look at it. Um, I always thought, when I first saw it, hang on, I don't know who these people are. There's not a lot of exposition. No, we're we're straight in here, aren't we? We're straight in, and I don't know who the people are. There's no origin story. There's nothing like that. So when we joined the story, the Red Hand Gang are raking through bins. They are. And I have to be honest, it looks like colourised footage of urchins in the Great Depression. <laughs> it look, it's, ter- it's terrible. What are they doing? Scratting around in what bins they, for bottles? What, yeah, what was your sort of interpretation of what was going on there? Well, w- I remember being a kid thinking, mm-hmm. oh, they're poor, they're, they're poverty-stricken and whatever. It's not. They're just trying to make an extra few quid by digging up bottles to take back to the pub and say, oh. So, they, yeah, basically they're finding bottles that have got sort of return, uh, yeah, that are returnable. So they can like get a few, 
get a few coppers here and there so they can build up a dollar so that they can buy little Bill a glider. Yeah. That's that's nice, isn't it? You know, little Bill's making all of them work just so that he can have a toy that he'll get stuck in a tree the instant he's got it, but yeah. Frankie, the elder kid, played yeah. by Matthew Labortio, needs to have a word with his folks because uh-huh. there's no way on God's earth Lil Bill is his brother. <laughs> there is this. There's, some... some, there's something going on. Somebody's getting their eggs fried in the same pan. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm telling you right now, there's something going on. He needs to question his parents. Has, has little Bill had a blunt force head trauma? <laughs> He's a fucking simpleton. Yes, he is, yeah. He's looking up through through the bottom of a bottle, which somehow he goes, oh, this is like a telescope, this. And you're like, that's like the bottom of no bottle I've ever seen, but okay. He sees a kid with masking tape over his mouth staring out of a window and thinks to himself, I'm not going to mention this to the four people I'm with for at least another hour. <laughs> Right? Hey, Billman! Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, the kid can't even find a T-shirt that fits. So what True. are you going to do? True. Yeah, no. Even back in the day, Lil Bill annoyed me. He was that uh-huh. annoying little sibling that just was trailing after everybody. Can I join in? No, you can't. Go home. We should, address, we should address the elephant in the room. The, um, the acting here is subpar. We said before yes, that, is. you know, yeah. kids are rarely... You can find one or two good kid actors to find five of them who can all act and put them in the room together or put them, you know, in this case, on a rubbish heap together. It's not going to happen. And it didn't happen. Yeah. It didn't happen. Well, there are two notable exceptions. Uh, Labortio. Right. And James Bond III. We'll get we'll, we'll get to him. I've got notes on him. I've got, a, we will, I've got paragraphs on him. Yes. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> and deservedly so. But... <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Um, switch it to the adult cast. Yeah. Um, these bad guys, mm-hmm. okay, stayed in my head for a long time for various different reasons. Any thoughts on Marco, Anthony Zerb? <sighs> We've got basically three kidnappers. They're basically failing to control the kid. And they're even, in terms of characterization, they're even more exaggerated on one note than the kids, aren't they? Now... Very DR. plain set sort of archetypes. Mm-hmm. You've got Anthony Zerb, who's Marco. He's the main one. You've got James... Who had that face that terrified me for years <laughs> after this fight. But you've got James really? Hampton, who plays Tosca. He's the bumbling one. Then you've got Maureen Arthur, who plays Lola. She's the one that is like a gangster's mole in any other movie. Anthony Zerb and James Hampton mm. are what happens mm. when you buy Danny Aiello and Ned Beatty from the middle aisle at Aldi. There you go. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yes, but, but then this is this is this is very important. James Hampton is who you get if you go to the top shelf of the Condor Man uh, license shelf in Forbidden Planet because he's Harry, of course. Ah, but again, okay. but again, he's Harry's bungling, despite not as bungling as this character, but uh, right. still, still, an, still an idiot. Mm-hmm. Um, you let a Rolls Royce fall off a pier, but. <laughs> Yeah. Now, Lola, let me tell you, yep. when I was a kid, first watching this, I was convinced that was Florence Henderson, a.k.a. Carol Brady from The Brady Bunch, the mother. Right. Yeah. And I thought, oh, is this Carol Brady's evil twin? So this was, it was bizarre. So that stayed with me for quite some time. Then, that same year, that the... Uh, okay, so this was aired... Red Hand Gang was aired in May. Yeah. 
me and my parents went on holiday to the island of Jersey in the Channel Islands in okay. July. And it was one of the, it was like an Airbnb, mm-hmm. but like in, in the 80s. So we went, to, essentially, we were staying at somebody's house. The woman who owned the house left us on the very day we arrived. She gave us the keys and off she went. The woman was Lola. Not the actual actress, but a woman who was the spitting dabs of Lola. She, Imagine my horror. She looked like at, someone who would kidnap a child. To, well, no, she just looked like Lola. Okay. But um, I, w- I was seven years old. And my mouth dropped open. I'm thinking, it's Lola from the Red Hand Gang. Um, so that was that was bizarre. Uh, but to, to give Lola our credit, and this is attention to detail with the character, mm-hmm. Lola has got her name written on her sunglasses. That, that's style. That's style. Surely that's exactly the kind of evidence you don't want when you're in the middle of a crime. <laughs> it, uh, absolutely, but it's style. Did you see someone reading the newspapers here earlier? I did. Who was it? I don't know. But I, I name, a name was written on a gaps, so it definitely couldn't have been Lola. Otherwise, who would do that? Right, so we're not <laughs> looking for someone called Lola. That's correct. The only person I know who would do that is Carol Brady. All right. <laughs> but, yeah. Now, at various times over the last 40 years or so, mm. I found myself waking in the middle of the night in that sort of hinterland of consciousness where my brain's unable to differentiate between dream, memory, and what's occurred in the waking world. Mm-hmm. And as I stumble out of bed to look into the orange-lit street outside, I swear blind I can still hear this sound echoing between the buildings and my own psyche. The BBC Genome website tells me that The Face at the Window was aired in 1980, 1983 and 1985. But I swear to God, this episode used to be on at least once a month. (laughs) That tune is (laughs) seared into my memory, even though I can't remember what happens in the rest of the episode. The the music from The Red Hand Gang, the incidental music from The Red Hand Gang. Oh, yes. Of everything that's included within it musically, Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. theme tune, I think, is all right. The theme tune gets sort of the mainstream... Nostalgia credit, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Which... But the, the incidental... Oh, the incidental is a work of art. It now, is street as absolute fuck. Ken, can we get a blast of this? Come on. And for me, to this day, I whistle or hum this at least once a week. Now, there's no credit for the composers here, but it was orchestrated by Arthur B. Rubinstein. Yes, it was. Yes, it was orchestrated. I, I when they do that. when they do the revival series of this, uh, I want him in the gang with Doc. I want him. I want Arthur B. Rubinstein just walking around with the tape recorder and playing the music diegetically. Speaking of which, yes. J- James Bond the third. He is the coolest fucking cat in this pack. Absolutely. Be, if it was me, I'd be leading the series with him. If they, if they do do mm-hmm. the, the adult revival series, Doc is definitely being played by Sam Jackson. God, yes. Now, 
the other kids in this, they look like they live and sleep in that little shed. And especially little Bill, who's constantly got the last three rats he's eaten smeared around his mouth. Doc- he's like Jackie Coogan <laughs> from the Charlie Chaplin silent movie. <laughs> Doc, on the other hand, is fucking meticulously turned out. The lad Now, the lad's wearing geps, which means he's used to being more careful than the other scruffs he hangs around with. Those khaki shorts and those pristine sports socks suggest to me that Doc goes home three times a day to get changed, and I respect that. <laughs> yes. There is yes. no way on God's clean earth he looks like that by hanging around a rubbish dump all day looking for bottles. He's too smart, apart from anything else. He's just sitting there going, have you found bottles I can make money off? No, try harder. <laughs> yeah. Doc is He's... fucking fantastic. Yes, he is. Now, I like that when the kids go to the... I say the kids. It's Frankie and little Bill, isn't it? It's not the rest of the kids. It, it's worth pointing out that we're 20 minutes in before Frankie decides to get the gang in on the action here. That's like Justice League if the entire first act is just Batman and Robin walking around the streets bothering the police over shit that isn't there. Anyway, Pretty much. When they finally get the police involved, I do like that the officer they find isn't instantly dismissive of them because they've avoided like an easy cliche there. So, you know, he sort of takes it seriously and like he goes to investigate mm-hmm. where they sort of claim they've seen the kid. And might... That Paulus man, he sees a sandwich and a glass of milk on the kitchen table, and he thinks, mind, that's suspicious. Yes. Is, yes, he, is he? he fucking simple as well? Is the implication that adults can't drink milk? Yeah. I'll tell you what. I'm not settled until Lola drinks this glass of milk. Huh? <laughs> why is she Why is she so against it? Because there's such a big deal made of this milk. Yeah, no, I'm did, thinking, is it like drugged well, or something? Well, did James Hampton piddle in it or something along those lines? Because he was the one who was drinking it last, wasn't he? Well, there was like three plates out and three, in fact, no, uh, four. There was plates out for all of them. By the time, right. by the time they moved the kid out, I could understand it if there was like a table full of plates and the police had gone, oh, if it's just you here on your own, why all these plates? No, there's one plate and one glass of milk. There's nothing remotely suspicious about this at all. And as she said, she's just finishing her lunch. Huh? It's like she's like, fuck's it got to do with you? A lot of this is just fast without the laugh track, isn't it? It is, and that whole situation with the baseball card. Stuck to the. Oh, I the, don't. The I've got that. How, how is yeah. that? How is taping a baseball card to a lamppost a clue? The clue, not just the clue. The entire inciting incident to the end of the whole thing. Was he? Uh, it's not like he was sitting up there in that room. By the way, uh, listener, have a go to peggymanpod.com, Click on the link. Watch the episode. Otherwise, yeah, you know we haven't described this very well. It's not like the kid was sitting up there in that room holding the baseball card and then little Bill goes, that's the card I saw him holding. They only ever made one of them. That's clearly got to be the one. No, he's just... Oh, look, there's a bit bit of rubbish taped onto a lamppost in an entire city full of shit that we go (laughs) working through every day. (laughs) How is this a clue? Right. And and they just all jump on the... Even Doc, mate, even Doc. You know what I mean? He's like, it's got to be the thing. It's got to be his. It's got to be his. Has it, Doc? Has it, James Bond the third? Has it? Why has it? <laughs> no, Doc's like, well, that's got to be the thing, isn't it? Because fuck all else you've said has made any sense. Uh-huh. This was the first show that I watched as a kid that ticked the right boxes for me personally. See, I loved American cop shows. Mm-hmm. Starsky and mm-hmm. Hutch, which gets a mention, actually. Yeah. Um, and And various others. So the setting in America, American culture, etc. And there was nothing else out there with that kind of thing where the kids were the protagonists. So as a seven-year-old, I absolutely loved this programme. Absolutely loved it. It is a... 
it's a definite thing where the minute you're older than the protagonist, you think this isn't for you. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, find, I think that's just generally true across all sort of kids programming and films. It's like, you know, if you're 10 years old, you're not going to watch something with eight-year-olds running around. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, if you're like that line or under, this is I do think this is absolutely fantastic. Not that I've watched the rest of it, but yeah, you know. There's just some little bit of magic about this programme. They got it right. Mm-hmm. They got. I think they really did get this right. So in short, Red Hand Gang, uh, for me, um, is a success. But yourself, Blackout, how many pegs would you place upon the line? Well, this feels very simplistic and methodical. Um, it definitely needs more dock. But because it's got dock in it, six out of nine from me. What about yourself? Solid. Solid, yeah. Um, this had so much for me as a kid. I, ah, oh, I'm not going to beat about the bush. I've said how much I like it. Eight out of nine. Mm, fair play. So pegs are on the line. But the question remains, Blackout, how many steps would it take you to climb up the mountain? I can do it in three. This instalment of the Red Hand Gang features an appearance by Ernest Saraceno, who also rocked up in The Girl from Uncle alongside Stephanie Powers, who starred in seven episodes of the BBC daytime soap Doctors with Christopher Timothy, who showed his face in our old favourite Night of 100 Stars, as did the inimitable Peggy Mount. Ah, here we are, ladies. Lovely, lovely. How many steps can you do it in? I can do it in nine. I'm joking, it's three. <laughs> okay, so starring as one of the kidnappers here is James Hampton, who is in the It's a Dog's Life episode of Murder, She Wrote, as was Lynn Redgrave, who appeared in 1973's The National Health, next to Eleanor Bron who trod the boards in our other old favourite, 1978's Golden Gala, along with the incomparable... Peggy Mount. The symbol of our national greatness. Lovely work. I know, right? Very good, very good. Well, the Red Hand Gang. The Red Hand Gang. My, my hands are red from clapping. From so much excellent children's drama. Do you know that? I will say something though. You you look hungry. Would you like an apple? In a bit. I'm I'm fine for now. You you shouldn't be carrying apples with your uh, with your hands that red. That I shouldn't. You're right. Work but out, maybe work out well, another way. All right. I work out another way. But just check the adverts. Maybe through that you'll build up an appetite for an apple. Yeah. Uh huh. Not an orange, an apple. You look hungry. This is Speak and Spell from Texas Instruments. Spell with it. Keep score. Play mystery words and more. And now there's Speak and Maths too. Speak and Spell, Speak and Maths, little professor from Texas Instruments. Make learning more fun than games. That is correct. It's the Connect Four competition. Who will be the first to connect a line of four? 
Dave's trying for a horizontal line, but Sue spotted it. She's blocked him, and she's going for the vertical. Dave's too quick, and he's seen it. He's going for the diagonal line. I've got it! Well, here, we're on the line. Connect four from MB Games. TCR. TCR, Total Control Racing from Ideal. There we are. Buy the things. Buy the lovely things. Buy them. What's that? What's the noise? Oh, that's the fax machine. We haven't put it on silent. Ken won't be happy. Uh, no, he won't be happy. Hang on. Let me Fair go enough. have a look. Yeah, yeah, go on. Go on. Because it'll be for you. I know it'll be for you. Never for me. Right. <clears throat> let's, let's have a look, shall we? Dear Doctor. Oh, this, this one's for you. <clears throat> right. Dear Doctor, I think I saw you and producer Ken in Tandy's last week browsing Jack Jack cables, but I was too shy to come up and say hello. Then, in all my dithering around, I got pulled up and interrogated by the in-store security guard for acting suspicious. Anyway, I just wanted to let you know that I printed out your fan art of John Hickson and UB40 battling Beelzebub on the roof of Grace Brothers Department Store, and it has pride of place above my mantelpiece. I only have a dot matrix printer, so I had to colour it in myself. I enclose a photo of the final result. Regards, Lee Peters from Peter Lee. And yes, yes, Lee has indeed sent his colour photograph by fax. Thanks a lot for that, Lee. That shall likewise take pride of place on our own gallery wall here at Mount Peck Towers. If you'd like to send us your pictures, you can email them to peggymanpod at gmail.com or you can get the fax number off of our internet site if you like. Send us plenty of artwork, because we do like it. We need to decorate the walls. Yeah, that's they're, true. They're a, they're a horrendous grey at the moment, which I know is on brand, but it's not the point. Send us red, send us green, send us blue. Like these boys. Yes, the Cannon and Ball Show. This was a primetime vehicle for the massively successful comedy double act who rose from the Lancashire club circuit. Produced by London Weekend Television for ITV, this mix of sketches, two-handers, special guests and musical interludes ran from 1979 to 88, over nine series and 62 episodes. We've watched Series 2, Episode 3, first broadcast on Friday the 25th of April 1980 at 7.30, with a special guest appearance from Dame Peggy Mount! Yep! Brilliant title sequence. Pure 80s. Mm-hmm. Pure 80s. Especially the font, actually. Yeah. You yeah. enjoying the font? You're very artistic. Very much so. Now, um, we get into the, the, the opening little routine that's so typical of your double act format. You know, it's there. Well, it's very, um, it's very typical of Morecambe and Wise, isn't it? And as is the dialogue. Yes. Um, <laughs> the, the, the dialogue... Is, uh, Wow. I suspect that it's all meant mm. to be sort of homage, but it does yes. come over like, by this point, LWT is stylistically institutionalised. Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, I'll tell you what it is. Their writer... Mr Sidney Green. That's it. Yep. He studied the Eddie Braben handbook from cover to cover, mind, doesn't he? Yes. Yes, indeed he has. But, but, what he, but also, though, to be fair... He does know the characters, the personas of Cannon and Ball. He knows what he's writing here. 
Yeah. He's got that right. He's absolutely nailed that on. Now, Sid Green is the only one credited on screen for writing this. And yeah. looking at IMDb, he basically seems to have worked on all of their ITV shows. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, he is the backbone of this. Um, Pretty much. And not wanting to go at this too early, but if this is what Sid has written for them, can you imagine how shit their own material must have been? But Green's writing credits go all the way back to 1956. His The man's output is fucking Herculean. He's worked with Roy Castle, with Lance Percival, Frankie Howard. He's worked with Morecambe and Wise. Sid Green even wrote an episode of Starsky and Hutch. So perhaps you can explain to me that after the intro, straight into a musical number, we then get a five and a half minute sketch with no discernible direction or jokes. Right. I mean, it is what it is to be getting number. They mentioned something. They mentioned one of their one of their acts in the in the first segment, Ritz. And I thought, okay, this Ritz must be a big uh, big deal. Uh huh. Uh huh. And then in the next segment, we get Ritz. Yeah. Wow, we. Now again, I'm I li- have never seen anything like this in my entire life. <laughs> Now, I was unfamiliar with the work of Ritz. So, again, Same. 30 seconds on Google. Looking at their filmography on the BFI website, they seem to have started on Search for a Star, you know, mm-hmm. gone through the uh, the talent show sort of gig, uh, and then basically become Cannon and Bull's house band. That's it. Yep. That That's it. That's the... Yep, there we go. Not in my mind. Ritz. This is the best thing I've seen in the last two years on any media <laughs> format. Is this because they're doing a song about roller skates and 25% of the band are wearing roller skates? They couldn't They couldn't even afford more roller skates. And the choreography. <laughs> Woo. While, while he's buggering about on roller skates, uh-huh. um, the backing band's choreography. Woo. All I can say is I was a gog. <laughs> I was a gog. Yeah, it's fucking beautiful. This five minutes with Ritz, it's fucking amazing. <laughs> They're very much going for a sort of a a long form. You know, there's none of this, like back when we did the Russ Abbott Christmas show and these sketches are like sort of 30, 45 seconds, couple of minutes if you look at mm. Every one of these, no, we're going to grind this out. Four and a half, five minutes? No, we can do longer than that. All I'm saying is Tommy Cannon uh-huh. can rock a polo neck and a blazer combo. Well, you see, I've got... The minute we come out of the musical number, go to the break, come back from the break, Tommy's wearing a polo neck that looks like a surgical brace. (laughs) He is, yes. Yes. And they've got this really weird musical piece, which, again, riffs on Morecambe and Wise. Um, And it's just... It's Tony out of Ritz. It's... (laughs) They're going, oh, it's Johnny Mathis. Uh And they make a whole, like, joke about it not being Johnny Mathis. And I'm thinking, where's this going? It's fine. It, you know, it's not too strained towards that line as many, many other shows of that uh, era would. And then we're into the headline sketch with Dame Peggy. We are. Centred around a we cake are. competition in a church hall. Yeah. That's going to go all right, isn't it? Well, can you go wrong with that? It's pretty uh, pretty mainstream. It's, it's straightforward. Yeah, yeah. This sketch yeah. lasts for eight and a half minutes. Yes, it does. In light entertainment I- terms, that needs an interval. I had to press pause and go for a shave. What is, um, what's Peggy got in her head there? Right. Is that a wig or is it a hat? I genuinely want it's to know. A hat. There's a, there's it's a, a hat. It, 
there's a there's a clip on the back of it which looks like it's meant to be in her hair. But well, then it's like yeah, such the, a bad but it's a, it's a bad hat and a bad wig. I can't honestly can't. Nobody's hair. Nobody's hair looks like that. Nobody's hat looks like that. The minute you get the close-up shots, it's just like weird sort of plaited nylon thing that's on her hair. Like, is that meant to be? Like, well, it can't be a hat because a hat wouldn't look like that, but then neither would a hair. I don't understand what this is. To be fair. So, yeah, no. a protracted sketch about the winning cake for a cake competition, mm-hmm. which kind of it sort of plays to Peggy's strengths, I think. Or um, in the at end, this, at this point, you're only young twice, are still ongoing. Uh huh. To you know, her sitcom credentials are very, very permanent at that point. Um, they are indeed. The battle axe thing is expected. They play on that all throughout the show. Yeah, yeah. Her delivery right, okay. of this. You'll both get it in a minute. In the mood. <laughs> was absolutely beautiful it really was it's one of the mm-hmm. high points of british comedy that year it really was as well as actually um the lads when they get together to say the following four words now that's so that sketch grinds on until it's bitter bitter end and then we're back onto the main stage and we've got cannonball wrapping up the show am i is it overly cruel and, you know, I've been fairly blunt about this so far. Is it overly cruel for me to say this feels like the cheapest half hour of television ever made? Not ever made, um, because we've yet to cover Bullseye the early years. Okay, okay. But, you know what I mean? This yeah. Is, this is prime time, yeah. mate. This is Friday night ITV. People are watching it this. Is. Well, yeah, well, Forsyth's getting all the money, though, isn't he? For play your cards right. Cars, holidays. There is a bit on the Wikipedia page. Seriously, you can look this up at home, dear listener where after doing their own sort of talent show business, they were booked to be on, uh, I think it was Bruce's Big Night, or one of the one of the Forsyth vehicles, and they were basically cut down in the edit because Bruce was like, can we do that again but have more of me on it? So, yeah, they, they, cut, out the, <laughs> they cut out the cannonball. And they got their own show, and that's fine. Uh-huh. But this is the show they made. And is that fine? This isn't, but the, the eventual, what, what became of the Saturday Night Show was brilliant. They're in their second series by now. This they is, are. you know, they're half, this show's halfway through the second series. Um, mm-hmm. hmm, yeah. All right, cannon and ball. So if we put a ball into a cannon and fired it across a washing line as it escalated across, how many pegs would it see upon the line that had been placed there by yourself, Blackout? Well, I'm going to give it four out of nine. Rude. And that's only because of Peggy. There's not much to actively dislike here. The problem is that there isn't much else to it either. This is absolute filler material, which is unforgivable for a show with this time slot. What about yourself? Okay, okay. Um, the potential of, of Cannon and Ball is there. Um, I know what, what was to come later was, was great, but judging it on this itself, I'm going to give it... Five for uh, for cannonballs imse- themselves. Okay. But I'm going to add an extra two for Ritz. <laughs> Nasty Blackout doesn't like anything. Right? <laughs> that aside, Blackout, how many steps upon the mountain? I can do it in zero. We're already there. Yes, we are indeed. Because, of course, Dame Pegatha Mountbatten... Is in this episode. Indeed so there's me steps is. to take. Yes, yes. Well played, yes. Peggy. Well played. Well played indeed. Better than the rest Absolutely. of the show. Even though we couldn't decide whether it was your hair or a hat. 
but there we are. Oh, I didn't think it was her. I didn't think it was her hair. I thought it might be a wig or a hat. Uh, well, yeah. Can, you can see her hair coming out from underneath it. That's why I'm like, is it a hat? <laughs> Your confusion. I love it. All right, good. Fantastic. And that brings us ah, rather subtly to the end. Blackout, as always. As your socials. Yes, thanks once again for dropping in. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email PeggyMountPod at gmail.com or we are at PeggyMountPod on the Twitter. You can also find us by searching for the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour on Facebook. Do not forget to go to PeggyMountPod.com and check out the show notes for this episode. It's as simple as that. Right, we're off. You'll hear from us next week. And look out for our free gift on the cover of Look In. Until then... Keep Mountain. The Peggy Mount Calamity Hour is a free podcast from iCall Media which holds production copyright. Opinions and recollections expressed are not to be taken as fact. The title and credit music is by Dr. Velvet. Audio segments from television programs are presented for review and informational purposes only under fair use, and no ownership of these is claimed or implied by this show. For more information, visit PeggyMountPod.com. Peggy Mount Pod.com.